Um, as a good friend of mine um, was, is a, a, a national Christian speaker. Um, he uh, gets asked to do all sorts of things around the country. And he was asked to do a co-lead at a seminar at a, at a very large uh, conference. Um, and he was co-leading this seminar with uh, somebody else from a, a US team across from the States and a big leadership topic. So he, he prepared his talk, had everything ready, had his notes, but communication with his, his partner in, in, in the seminar was, wasn't great. He wasn't getting a lot of feedback on email and, and all the rest of it. Anyway, so he hasn't really heard from his counterpart. And the day comes for the, the, the breakout session is announced. Uh, everybody starts making their way to this big seminar in this big hall, and he goes with his notes. And he says, I appreciate, you know, a little bit disconcerted. We've not communicated brilliantly on this. But, um, do, you want, do you want me to do my bit first or second? I'm fairly easy with that. And uh, the person said, they said, no, no, it's fine. I've got it all in order. If you could just operate the visuals, that would be fantastic. He said, sorry? He said, uh, yeah, if you could, um, I've got everything in hand. Just operate the visuals. That would be great. So he, uh, slightly stunned, <laughs> kind of loped off to the audio-visual seat and uh, operated for them. That was quite a humbling experience uh, for him, and uh, one that really tested his submission, um, his sense of servant servanthood, and possibly his anger management uh, as well. But our reading today is taken from the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. And I think it's always helpful to understand how, the, how this letter is structured um, so that we can understand how Paul uh, puts things together, like he does in many of the epistles, many of the letters that are written. And usually what happens in these letters is there is a chunk of theology at the beginning, um, and then there's how it is applied uh, in our lives beyond. And that is generally the pattern of, of many of the letters, because what you believe affects how you behave. And we've seen that before. The truth of what you have affects how you live the life that you might, that you might live. So apparently somebody has won £123 million on the lottery this week. Uh, my guess is if that was you, it may affect a few things. It might affect how you spend your money. It might affect how you give your money or how you invest your money or perhaps even uh, whether you work at all um, or what you do with your job. Uh, likewise, uh, Brexit, we are talking about politics this morning, um, the Northern Irish, the, the border, uh, between the Irish border issue, you know, for people who have grown up through the 70s and through the troubles and all the way up to the Good Friday Agreement, my guess is they will campaign differently on these issues because of what they know, because of how, what their experience uh, has been. Perhaps a little more trivial, for some anyway, uh, maybe not for others, uh, Aston Villa, after their 10-match winning streak, probably went into the playoffs with a new confidence and a new possibility of what might happen, which eventually did as they go into the Premiership. And our hope is they will plan differently now as they go into that. What they know and what has come their way, and they have got a good bit of money um, that we hope they will spend wisely, if you support them, uh, affects how you live. And so what you know, uh, the truth of what you have affects, it motivates, it inspires the way that we live life. And so in the Christian life, our theology, our doctrine, the truths that we have, the, the promises of God's words in our lives affect how we work it out um, when they're properly understood and how they transform our lives. And so Paul sets out in Ephesians our riches. It's not 123 million pounds, but it is our spiritual riches in Jesus. Because he knows that if we understand our wealth in the heavenly places, that will affect how we live life in the earthly places. 
Um, and so the bulk of the theology is in chapters one to three, and then the practical outworking is in chapters four to six, and we're in chapter five, so you can see where it kind of fits in. So here's the pattern in the book. There's the wealth that we have. First of all, the first chapter of Ephesians tells us that we have this incredible calling. We've been called by God to belong to his body, this incredible partnership that we have with him. And therefore, our walk will be different in chapter four. It says, therefore, walk in a way that is worthy of that. Walk in unity as every part plays its part in the body. Then he goes on in chapter two and he talks about our wealth. He says, you've been raised from the dead. How astounding is that? You were spiritually dead, but in the heavenlies, we've been raised up with Christ. We're made spiritually alive. Therefore, that affects how we live. He says, put off the grave clothes, bury the old self and put on the new clothes of purity in your life because you are a new person. You've been raised from the dead. Um, then he goes on in the second half of that chapter and talks about our wealth in the sense that we've been reconciled. We've been reconciled with God. We've been reconciled with one another. Verse 14, Jesus has made the two one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Therefore, we should walk in harmony with one another. We should submit ourselves to one another. And that submission comes out of what Jesus has done. Jesus submitted himself to, to even to death to reconcile us. And therefore that should affect how we live. And then the last part of that is in chapter three, which speaks of this mystery that's been made known, this amazing mystery that's been made known that Jesus has had the victory. He has overcome the devil, the Satan, the enemy. And therefore, um, that great chapter of chapter six and put on the armor of God. You know, live, take your stand uh, in the spiritual places, live in the victory of your life. So that's how Paul sets out things in the letter. His doctrine is there to motivate, to radically transform our lives. And our focus today is on this. If you wanna live life well, then we need to understand what God has done. And Jesus submitted to the will of his Father. You know, not my will, but yours. Um, so that we could be reconciled with God, we could be reconciled with one another, he could make things right that have gone wrong, and therefore, that affects how we live, and therefore, we submit to one another, living in unity and in harmony. Now, interestingly, in our, in our Bibles, in our English uh, translations of the Bible, um, verse 21, as we have it, starts with a capital S for submit. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But in the Greek text, apparently, it's not a sentence. It's the end of the previous sentence. So it's like a comma and a clause. And it means submitting to. And it's uh, what Paul has done, if uh, you know the passage before it, is he talks about the spirit-filled life. And he gives a number of marks of what a spirit-filled life looks like. And the last of those marks is submitting yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this is a God-inspired Spirit-empowered submission. And then he applies it to different relationships and he applies it into uh, husband, to husbands and wives as well. And we tend to focus on the word submit in that context. And sometimes we bristle at that because it appears to touch on the controversial subjects of gender roles, perhaps. But to get a true grasp of what Paul is trying to say here, we need to understand that everything he's about to say, he assumes that the parties are being filled with God's spirit, that they are people who have centered their lives on God and they have learned to serve uh, one another. And therefore that is the assumption that he makes. 
And Paul's move from the spirit-filled life to marriage teaches a couple of things. First of all, um, it teaches us, I got black here, that the picture here of marriage is not of two needy people who are unsure of their value, who are unsure of their purpose, and they find their significance and meaning in each other's arms. Because two vacuums, when added together, don't cancel each other out, but they give a stronger, larger vacuum. So Paul's assumption is that each spouse has settled the big questions of life. Why God has made them and put them here, who they are in Christ. And the second thing it teaches us is that our souls need to be filled and fueled by God so that we've got the resources to live this life that he calls us to, to be good spouses, to, to, to submit to others. Um, because if we look to our spouses to fill those needs, that, that tank that we need filling up, which the parts of that only God can fill, then we're asking for the impossible and we end up draining one another dry in those relationships. And then in the next seven or eight verses, Paul calls each partner to sacrifice for the other in far-reaching ways, whether a husband or a wife. Okay, we are not to live for ourselves, but we are to live for the other. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a high calling, verse 25. Both are to abandon self-interest for the other. And so Paul is applying a, a general principle about the Christian life into marriage. And the principle is that all Christians who understand the gospel, who really understand what it is about, um, undergo this radical change in the way that we relate to people. As he puts it in Philippians 2, you know, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. In fact, we're to be douloi, douloses, um, which is the Greek word for that bond servant, um, one to another. And if that's how much we are to live for one another in general life, how much more does that apply to husbands and wives? Um, I think in any relationship, if you ever, I don't know, spend the day together, um, um, you will have your personal preferences, the things that you want to do, the things you don't want to do. And uh, you've got three possible responses generally in those situations. Either you do what the other wants to do with joy, or you do it with resentment, or you selfishly insist on your own way. So Ruth and I have, have different, I would say, uh, thresholds to tidiness in our house. I don't know if that's something you relate to, but uh, yesterday we had a decluttering day. And therefore we've got the opportunity to serve the other with joy or to serve the other with resentment or selfishly insist on your own way. And you can ask Ruth uh, where that went to. But, um, <laughs> but it's only when we are both regularly responding in the first way in, in uh, serving one another with joy that a marriage can thrive. But that is hard at times. I can remember again uh, when we had very young children and uh, you know, I'd come back from work and uh, Ruth would be on the doorstep with a baby, uh, with a crying baby, with a, an ever-growing crying baby, and with the famous words, your turn. <laughs> and uh, I can remember on occasion thinking, I'm gonna go around the block just, just another time before I can go in, just to psych myself up for this moment and uh, the challenges of that. And some of you will relate to that. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, the main problem we have is the self-centered nature of the sinful human heart. 
It causes havoc in our relationships and is ever-present and it is an ever-present enemy in every marriage. But love is the opposite. As Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. Um, it doesn't boast. It isn't proud. It isn't rude or dishonoring of others. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And the warning signs are impatience, therefore, and irritability, and that lack of graciousness and kindness in our words and the way we say things, that envious brooding of uh, the better situation that others have, or holding hurts uh, from the past. These are the things that are at the heart of what leads to marital disintegration. And the researchers, as they, you know, they, they question people who've been through divorce, divorced couples, that is what they find. Um, they find all of that. And that, that people respond to self-centeredness of their partner with their own self-centeredness. And so you, you have this backwards and forwards and this spiral down. And the thing with self-centeredness is that its very nature does two things. It makes you blind to your own, and it makes you hypersensitive, offended, uh, and angered when you see it in others, as C.S. Lewis puts it in his, in his book, The Great Sin. But Jesus models this submission. Not my will, he says in the Garden of Gethsemane, but yours. And he does that in order to reconcile all things, to destroy the dividing wall of hostility. Therefore, walk together. Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Uh, some versions use the, the word cleave, which is more archaic, but perhaps puts it more strongly and more forcibly. That sense of cleave, unite, um, the strength of it. It literally means to be glued together. Uh, Brian Ferry's song, um, Let's Stick Together, uh, all about the marriage vow. When you become a Christian or you claim Jesus as Lord of your life or leader of your life, what we are saying is that in every aspect of our lives, we want Jesus to be the leader. We want him to be the Lord. We want him to be the number one. We make our decisions based on him. The way that we work, the way that we relate, uh, the people we are with. And that means there will be times when we do have rights, but we give them up for the sake of what God wants knowing that God has got a plan, that even if we, we give that up, then God has got a plan for the way that he can use our life. You know, Jesus gave up his right to life so that we could have reconciliation with God and with others. And if you're following Jesus, you've agreed to that life of submission. That, and that will play out in every single relationship, um, as Paul kind of then goes on to say. He talks about well, let's contextualize slaves and masters as employers and employees. I know it's not a great kind of comparison, but we, we understand how that applies to our lives. Basically, employers and employees work together, okay? You're not, you know, it's not one over the other in a sense, but work together um, in doing that. Both of you work for God, okay? You work for them because you work for Jesus, and you do it in such a way because you work for Jesus, because God shows no favoritism, on, on either of you. Therefore, do it in a well uh, and in a healthy way. Uh, have that team dynamic work well together. Parents and children. Children, honor, obey your parents. 
My guess is if you're a kid, you find that difficult. Parents, especially dads, don't exasperate your children. Okay, anybody exasperated their children recently? Probably. Okay, husbands and wives. So he applies it to all of these relationships. And submission at its very first level means I desire God's will. God's will in this situation more than my own. So first and foremost, when it comes to making decisions, I submit myself to God's will for my life. What does God want? You know, even if it's not quite what I want. And that will play out in little ways and it'll play out in big ways. I think in little ways, uh, submission uh, plays out in our relationships. Um, when you hold your tongue when you really want to speak. Anyone struggle with that one this week? Okay, when you ask forgiveness, even when you know, even when you want the other person to ask for forgiveness first. Okay, tricky one. You know, when you let something go, even though you know that the person hurt you intentionally and willfully, but you let it go anyway. Okay, when you choose to love someone perhaps that is not that lovable. Okay, all of that is about submission and all of that we can bring into all of the relationships that we experience. I think where we get riled up about submission in marriage is, is when we, we think about the intentional, willful, somebody trying to hurt someone else, somebody trying to oppress them with evil intent, uh, somebody who's kind of working in a very highly self-centered uh, way. And we're still supposed to submit in that? Well, of course not. That is not what it is about. Having said that though, I heard of a, of a woman just the other day and she married a guy he wasn't a Christian. Um, I don't know if they were neither were Christians when they got married or whether she became a Christian. I don't know the situation. But he was very vocally and forcefully against her faith and against her participation in anything Christian. Now, some might say that's, that's totally wrong, okay, which it is, um, but she should leave him. But she didn't feel that's what God had for her. And so she stayed and she prayed for him. Um, and when he didn't want her to do certain things, she chose not to do them, okay? But she prayed and she cultivated her own relationship with God. And then fast forward a long 10 years, and he's a Christian. And, and her kids are, are following um, lives of faith. Um, and that is not going to be everybody's path. It was her path. And actually, she was submitting to what God wanted for her in that situation because there are no promises of such happy endings um, in situations like that. Submission is about God's lordship, God's will in your life, trusting him, turning to him, um, and that will play out in our relationships. But we have to be realistic in a fallen world of what that will look like and what that can look like because there are toxic things that can happen in relationships. Not everything is going to end up uh, rosy at the end, or as we might hope. Not everything is redeemed uh, on this earth. But there are, that will mean that there will be marriages that end in divorce. When there are toxic and sometimes violent parts to it, submission doesn't mean staying in that. But it also doesn't mean claiming our rights all the time and not being willing to say, what does God want in this situation? What is God's will at play in this difficult situation? But at its heart, submission is a mark of the spirit-filled life. And that reminds us of Jesus's submission. It reminds us of the cost that was paid so that we can be reconciled to God and to one another. 
And it's an opportunity for each one of us to maybe resubmit or acknowledge that, uh, that we want to live that spirit-filled life. We want to be people that live in all of our relationships in a spirit-led manner.